Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Father, we thank you so much that you have put fathers in our lives. Father, we say that word fathers, and some of us have different mixed emotions that come with that. Some of us have experienced the hurts of a father. Lord, some of us have experienced the joys of being fathered. But Lord, in all cases, you are our heavenly father. And Lord, the best, even the best earthly fathers are just a dim shadow of you. But Lord, by your grace, sometimes a dim shadow is enough. So we thank you so much for the dads that are out there trying, the fathers that are out there following you close and trying to lead their families closer to you. And Father, we pray today for the fatherless. Lord, we pray for those that have lost their fathers. Lord, we pray for those that will uh, never see their fathers again. Lord, may they have the comfort of you. Would you just surround them? And Lord, would your grace be sufficient and that they know that you are enough. Lord, I think specifically today for uh, Philando Castile and his, his baby and that family, Lord, and just the injustice that was um, brought down this week, the aborted justice, Lord, and we just pray that justice is simply delayed because we know, Lord, that in your economy, Lord, there will be a reckoning for all sins. And Father, while we're on earth, may we just war and pursue for justice here, knowing that we'll never achieve it, but that should not stop us from trying to attain it. We ask all these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. It is good to be with you. I am Steve. I am, I am one of the pastors here. I'm kind of like the JV pastor, JV preacher, you know. Uh, if you're a first time, <laughs> come on, man. If you're a first time, if you're a first time, uh, Pastor James is, is one of our main communicators, but I get the opportunity to preach on Father's Day. I think this is the second, maybe the third year that I've preached on Father's Day, and that just comes with being the oldest guy in the church. You, get a, you always get to preach on Father's Day. I can just mark it on my calendar, and, uh, and that's good. So until we get an older, older pastor here, it's me. It's me. You're going to be stuck with me. Um, but we're going to be talking about today um, the prodigal son. I've entitled this The Prodigal Father. Because when you think about a prodigal, that, that word simply means to be exuberant, to be lavish. And, and some would say it's even being wasteful, that, you, that you're so exuberant in what you're spending and giving away that you're wasteful in that. And the sins of the prodigal son are far exceeded by the grace of our God. And so the God, our Father, God in heaven, is the prodigal. He is the one who lavishly gives us grace. He is the one who uh, it just pours out his love for us. And some would even say that it's wasteful. Now, when we look at the story, I think a lot of times we miss some of the meaning of it because we, we take the story of the prodigal son, which starts around chapter, excuse me, yeah, chapter 15, verse 11, and we don't read the first 10 verses in front of it. But while there's a great message just in that story, to completely understand it, you have to read verses 1 through 10, and you have to really understand verses 1 through 1 and 2. And who is in the audience listening to Jesus tell these three quick stories that he just gives one right after the other? And so we're going to look at this whole chapter, and we're going to talk about what Jesus was, was trying to communicate to the crowds that were following him at that time. 
One time I was preaching in Atlanta. Um, originally from Cincinnati, spent about seven years in Atlanta, and I was preaching at a church, and I was talking about Barnabas. Barnabas is this guy in uh, the, the New Testament, and Barnabas was his nickname. It means son of encouragement. Not a bad nickname to have. So I'm just doing this little thing, and I'm kind of trying to get some interaction with the audience, and I, and I would say, okay, I'm going to give you a sports nickname, and then you tell me who the real, the real person is. So I would say something like, the king. And they would reply, LeBron, LeBron. Now, I had an old lady in there who said Elvis, but other than that, I was like, we're on sports here. LeBron. I said his airness, Michael Jordan. We know that one. Then I said, Junior, King Griffey. Right, right, you got it. But I'm in Atlanta, you know what they said? Dale Earnhardt. I'm like, Dale Earnhardt, I just, I, these to me were just easy, I thought, but all of a sudden I realized the context drove the answer. Because in the South, I mean, race car's not even the sports, and I'm looking for sports metaphor. And, and, and the, <laughs> that's right, right? I'm safe up here, I'm safe up here, ain't nobody gonna come get me. But, but the context drove the, the answer. They had a certain worldview. Our worldview is, is determined. Our worldview is the lens in which we see life through, how we see God, how we see the meaning of our own lives. And, and there, there is a worldview that they had. And so today, we're going to look at the worldview of the audience that would have been listening to Jesus as he tells these stories. Let's look at Luke 15, uh, verse 1. Verse one, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. All right, so right here, we're just gonna stop and talk about who, who's the first group of people we have. So over here, we have tax collectors and sinners. And it says they were all drawing near to him. It's amazing when you read stories about Jesus, when we encounter him in the New Testament, we see time and time again that he attracted this crowd. People wanted to hear him. They wanted to listen to him. There was a hope that he would give, but he would also uh, frustrate and make a lot of people angry. But in this first crowd, we have tax collectors and sinners. Now, when you think about tax collectors, I mean, why would they lump tax collectors with this group of sinners? I mean, I'm a pastor, so there's a lot of jokes that are made about preachers, and, you know, I hear it. But I've never heard somebody say, you know, well, he's a, he's a preacher and a murderer, or, you know, those pastors are hanging out with human traffickers. They never put us in those categories together. But tax collectors and sinners are often seen uh, together. What is it? I mean, nobody likes tax collectors. I, I get it. Nobody wants to pay the government money. But this is beyond that. I mean, there's this hatred vile for them. Why would they be hated so much, the tax collectors? Well, during this time, Roman Empire was this massive empire that stretched from Europe to Asia. So it was this huge landmass. Now if you have this big landmass, how do you how do you keep its subjects in line? How do you rule over so many people from so many different cultures and so many different languages? You do it with an army. But the Roman army, if you were just to take Roman citizens, there was not enough citizens to fill an army to control that big of a landmass. So they would have mercenaries, and these were paid soldiers. And when you're going to hire a bunch of mercenaries, and you're going to feed them, you're gonna outfit them with the weapons that they need for war, and you're gonna take care and provide for them, how do you do that? Through taxes. 
You've got to collect lots and lots of taxes. Now the tax collectors in this audience were Jewish men that were taking taxes from Jewish people to support this vicious, vicious army. It wasn't just an army that was there to protect people. They were an army that was there to make a statement that you don't mess with Rome. You don't mess with us. They would go into a community. There's historical records of them going into a city and taking 15, 20,000 innocent men, women, and children and impaling them on stakes and then lining them up along the streets for 10, 15, 20 miles going outside of the city just to make that one statement, don't mess with us. Don't mess with us. And so guys like Zacchaeus, though he was a wee little man, he was a pretty wicked man. He was collecting money from his own people to give to a government. He was skimming money off the top. He had to pay the government to be able to collect the taxes, all of that stuff. But at the heart of it, he was taking money from his own people to give to a government that was going to murder, kill, and rape his own people. I don't know of a parallel to that. I mean, the closest thing I can think of is in Nazi Germany that, uh, you know, paying a Jewish man and that Jewish man would sell out his friends and family and community members so that they could load them like cattle on a train and send them off to the gas chambers. That's why they were hated so bad. That's why the tax collectors were in this group. So you had tax collectors and then you had sinners. Uh, the sinners were... Different, like we talk about sinners, I'm a sinner and you're a sinner, and that's true, we all are sinners, but this was a group of people. Again, they were, they were known for usually one of two things. One, uh, the profession they were in, like a tax collector, uh, a, a slave trader would have been considered a profession of sin, um, prostitution, so something that they did, their profession would categorize them as a sinner, or that they were born with some kind of um, deformity, or they had some abnormality about them, a disease, or, or they were blind. Remember in the story, the blind man comes up and, and they ask Jesus, is he blind because of his own sin or the sin of his parents, right? So he's considered a sinner because of this disease that he has. So in this group that's getting ready to hear these three stories, there's a trilogy of stories, you have sinners and tax collectors. Now what's their worldview? How do they see God? What do they think about life and why they are there? Well, they think they're alienated from God, that they are far off from God, and there is absolutely nothing they can do to come back into communion and relationship with God. By the nature of the abnormality they have or their profession, that they are excluded from God. In fact, they couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't worship in the synagogues. They were excluded from even Jewish religious community. They were alienated. So that's one group of people that you have in the crowd. Verse two, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. All right, so in the other side of the room, you had the Pharisees and the scribes. So everything these guys and gals were, these guys thought they were the opposite. Everything. They, everything they did was right. You, you go, this is summertime. We go down into our subway terminals. You know, it's like 95 and 100 degrees. I'm a big dude, so I get down there. You know, I'm pouring down with sweat. I walk like a block and a half. My shirt's all wrinkled. I'm always impressed how guys keep that, wrink, that unwrinkled shirt down here. You know, I just look like a hot mess for walking to like a block and a half. 
And then I'll walk and here comes some guy in a three-piece suit, tie, hair's perfect, not a drop of sweat. I'm just like, come on, how do you know? This outward appearance, everything is perfect. They have it all together. There's not, and that's the Pharisees and scribes, their outward appearance was everything was all together. They did right, all the right actions. They did all of the right, said all of the right things. Uh, they practiced the festivals and they, um, all, all of the right religious holidays. They were very particular about how they did them. Even in their sin, they would go through this, this cleansing, this ritualistic cleansing uh, ceremony that, that they would come out of that and think, man, I'm, I'm better. Not, I did sin, but I did all of this for God and so now I'm even better, and God would want me even more. And that's how they viewed life, that God needed them, that God was excited to have them on his crew, part of his team. That's the audience. So you have these people that says, God doesn't want to have anything to do with me, and then these people that said, man, God's lucky to have me. So that's the situation. Now let's read these stories. Story number one. So this is, so he told them a parable. Jesus told them this parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, so remember you had a bunch of day workers, day laborers sitting over here. They would, be, they would resonate with the story all of a sudden. A shepherd would be considered usually a sinner because of their lifestyle. So what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not, have, and does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on its shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all of his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. All right. So Jesus just took what they thought, their worldview, I'm alienated and I'm far from God. And he just destroyed that. He said, you're the one that's off, lost. You've rebelled. You've left the 99 good sheep. But I'm the shepherd and I'm going to go find you. These people, the Pharisees and, and the scribes are thinking, what? you've got 99 good sheep. Look, we're doing what we're supposed to do. We're not causing you problems. We're not running off. We're being good sheep. Why would you leave us to the danger of the natural elements to go find this one lost sheep that went on his own, that rebelled and went against the pack. And so he's destroyed their worldviews and he rebuilds a new one. He says that I am a God that will leave the 99 to go find the one lost. That's why these people, the Pharisees and scribes, started plotting this thing, this idea, this notion that he must die. How does Jesus go to the cross? How can a man who says, you know, let the little kids come to me, does these miracles, and he just seems like somebody that you would want in the neighborhood, in the community, how do they send him to the cross? Because he just told the 99 righteous ones that God loves this one just as much as you. In fact, he's willing to sacrifice all of you to make sure that this one can come back into the fold. That was scandalous. That was scandalous. Yet God says that one is important. And he goes and he finds him. Let's look at the next story. It's another story about something getting lost and, and, uh, and the owner going and retrieving it. Verse eight, 
It says, or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until, until she finds it? And when she has found it, again, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is joy before the angels of God over the sinner who repents. So picture this, a, a woman who has 10 coins. Each coin was probably about one day's worth of wages. So in a society where you pretty much live day to day, to have 10 coins and to lose one and still have nine, you're not in a critical position. You're not gonna, it, it, it's significant, it's a day's lab, wage, but it's not life-threatening. She still had nine. And these guys are over here thinking, why are we important? You still have nine coins. What's the value of one coin when you have nine? But yet, this woman is turning the couch and sweeping and looking in the corners, looking throughout the bed, turning over the mattresses, looking all over diligently until she finds this one coin. And, and this group of people are sitting here saying, you've got nine of us. Look at all you can buy with us. Think about everything you can get with us. Why waste your time on one? And then again, when she finds the coin, she invites her friends over and they celebrate and they rejoice because the one that was lost was found. And, and, and Jesus says that I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over the sinner who repents. But these Pharisees and scribes, they're not interested in people repenting. They're not interested in the lost being found. But Jesus says that he is a God that cares for the one. He is a God that cares for the lost. And not only will he be patiently waiting for them, but he'll go seek them, and he'll go find them, and he will bring them back to the community. Now we get into the story that we're more familiar with, the, the one that uh, many, many stories have been told about, seen many pictures, artists have tried to represent the story of the prodigal son. But in verse 11, it starts like this. So he just goes straight to the, the next one. He says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. So all of a sudden it switches, right? We can see the difference. Before we're talking about animals and we're talking about a coin. Now we're talking about people. We're talking about two sons. Almost the epitome of that culture to have children, but to have sons especially. And it says, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me my share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. This is culturally almost unfathomable for this to happen. This is a culture where family is everything. Family is the backbone of the society and the community. And the father's role within that family is not to be questioned. And when you go to your father and say, I want my inheritance before you die, you're saying, I'd rather you be dead. You are more value to me dead than you are alive. Give me my stuff. The younger son wanted his father's things, but he didn't want the father. 
he didn't want a relationship with the Father. And so he says, give me my stuff. Now, what's in Deuteronomy, it talks about a rebellious son, and if you have a rebellious son, that you're, you're allowed to take him out in the middle of the community and have him stoned to death. Not that kind of stoned, throwing rocks. <laughs> Culture, remember, I got a you know, worldview. We got to make sure we get that. But that you can take them out and have them stoned to death. What's more amazing than the son even asking for that is that the father said yes. That the father gave it to him. And he didn't just go to his bank account and pull out part of his money and say, here's your inheritance. He would have had to sell off property to give to that. So in a culture where your worth and value is determined by your family and how much and how good your property is, he all of a sudden lost his family stability, the father did, and he had to sell off a big portion of his property, reducing the stature that he has in the community. And yet he does. And then verse 13, it says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had took, excuse me, all he had and took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property, property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who set him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When we deny sonship, to the Father, we will become a slave to something else. When we deny our Father, we will start following and pursuing something else. That's what this young man did. He says, I don't want my Father, but I want his stuff. And he got his stuff, and then he started following the wicked ways of his heart. He didn't take his father's stuff and then go invest in a business and create a better life for himself. No, he, he took it and he says, I'm just going to become a slave to my own desires and wants. And at the end of all of that, when he hit the rock bottom, he was stuck in the middle of this field with nothing to eat, feeding pigs, which culturally for a Jewish person to even get near or close to a pig was considered unclean, uncultural, and dirty, and he's left to feeding pigs and begging and desiring to have the food that he's feeding them. And yet it says that he couldn't get any of it. So when you deny your sonship, you become a slave to your heart's desires. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants had more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but treat me as your hired servants. All right, any of you guys ever had to practice a speech? You had something big coming up, so you had to practice that speech and get ready for it? Uh, Jen and I, we've been married 20 years now. This May was 20 years. pretty awesome. I keep coming home. She's still there every day. So <laughs> 20 years. But when we had known each other about three months when we got engaged. And uh, I know, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> but my daughters aren't allowed to do that. Now, that's different, right? 
was different. We were older. We were more mature. Life was different, you know. Uh, <laughs> different culture, different context. So we had, we had been uh, dating about three months, and uh, so I went and pawned a bunch of stuff off. I pawned a bike. I had uh, a boat, and I, a canoe, not like, like a real boat or something. And, and, uh, and, and then I played a lotto ticket, and I won $300 off this lotto ticket. All right? So I'm like, all right, this is God's will. He wants me to get married, this girl. <laughs> so, uh, so I go, and, and I... We were in a community in Kentucky, uh, going to college. I was finishing up school. She had already graduated, um, Cumberland College. And so I drove about 45 miles south to Knoxville to pick up this ring. And I found this ring. And it was, it was hot. It was like end of the summer. Um, and I remember I rolled up my windows because I was afraid I'd be in a car wreck. And then the ring would go rolling out the car, and I'll never be able to find it. So kept the windows up, you know, just nervous, anxious, and excited. And I started practicing my speech. I started thinking about all the things I'm going to say, you know, the, the, the funny, the romantic, the, you know, try to take her back to the moments when we first met and all of these different things coming to my mind. And, and then she, I go to pick her up and we're going out for dinner that night. And, and I said, hey, babe, will you wear this for me? So after all of that speech and in prep, <laughs> that's all I had. She's like, you got a shirt? What would you buy for me? That's all I had. And that's what the son, he's, he knows this is a big, I know. I know, I, I had not, that's all, that's all I had. So here's the son, he knows it's a big moment, right? He knows that this can change things. And so he starts practicing his speech, he's getting ready. He knows the seriousness of it. And then he goes, he's going to his father and in his speech he's gonna say, make me like one of your hired hands. He could have said, make me like one of your servants. But he said, make me like one of your hired hands. A hired hand would have been a person that had a skill or a trade, and they would have made an income through the work on, on, in the father's household. So what he was saying is, Father, let me come and earn my way back into a relationship with you. Let me pay my debt off that I owe you. Let me earn and work hard to get back in the right standings with you. That's his intention. In verse 20, it says, and he arose, and so he's got this speech ready. He's ready to work hard to get back into favor with his father. And he arose, and he came to his father. And we're ready for the father to lay hands on him, right? But, but it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. For a man at that time that was the head of a household to pull up his robe and tuck it into his belt and to run after a disobedient son would have been a prodigal. It would have been lavish, exuberant, wasteful, yet so compelled by compassion and love, the father shed off all of the emotions, all of the feelings of hurt. And he sees his son waiting and looking. He sees his son from a distance and he runs to him and he puts his hands around him and he kissed him. And then verse 21, and the son said, so he's got this speech and he's ready to give it. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, shh, stop it. Stop it. 
But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Who owns the best robe in the house? The father does. Bring my robe. Put it on him. Bring and put, on, put, on his, put it on him and put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found and they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. Who's the real prodigal here? Who's the one that is spending lavishly Recklessly, it's the Father. It's the Father. This is the gospel. This is grace. This is why we gather. This is why we sing songs. Because you have a God that welcomes back the prodigal son. You have a God that that desires so much to restore the relationship that he will do anything for that. In fact, we we talk about it here, that Jesus himself went to the cross and died so that that relationship can be restored. But in this story, the son comes back and the father runs. Now, if you're over here and you're one of those tax collectors, you're one of those sinners, you're rejoicing. You're, You're celebrating. This is why a woman who had been bleeding for years, who, who had no cure and could not find any answers, would sacrifice and risk everything to get to the feet of Jesus and just touch his garments for healing. This is why Mary would lay at his feet and pour perfume on it and take her hair and wipe his feet because of this undeserving kind of hope this undeserving grace. And if you're a tax collector and you're a sinner, you're hearing that. All of a sudden you realize your entire worldview, everything that you've been taught, everything that you've thought about yourself is wrong and that there is a God that loves you and desires to have a relationship with you. And guess what? You can't work yourself back into this family. It's given to you. But if you're over here and you've worked hard and you've done everything right and you've obeyed all of the laws and these guys get in scot-free, they've wasted your inheritance. Look at us, we've done everything right. This is when they started saying, this man's gotta die. Because everything that they have been taught has also been destroyed. And everything that they knew or thought they knew about God was wrong. Verse 25. Now his older son, so the father's older son, was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and heard the music and dancing. All right, so now there's the party going on. The father had killed the fatted calf If you were killing the fatted calf, that means that was the big party. That was the big celebration of the year. Usually a calf would feed about 100 people. So the whole community would have been invited. And in a society where meat was rarely even ate for a meal, when you had meat, it was was a celebration. And so the brother, he hears this and he's in the field. What's the brother doing in the field? He's working. Why is he working? 
He's trying to get the grace of his father. He's trying to get the respect of his father. He's trying to get the acceptance of his father. He has everything that is the father's is his. He doesn't have to be in the field working, yet he's out there working and toiling and trying to say, look at me, I'm doing everything right. And so as he drew near to the house, he, he, heard, he heard the party and he called one of his servants and asked him, what are these things, what do these, excuse me, ask what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His, in. his father came out and entreated him. He begged him, he pleaded with him. But he answered his father. He said, look, look, showing complete disrespect for the father. Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed you. The arrogance to think that he has never disobeyed the father. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. They have the prime rib going on here. And he's saying, why didn't you give me a hot dog to have with my friends? <laughs> the party's going on in here. There's the celebration. The son has come back. And he wants a hot dog to celebrate with his friends. <laughs> but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Listen, just like the younger son, the older son wants his father's things, but he doesn't want the father's relationship. He's just gonna go about it a different way. He's gonna manipulate his way into the father's things. He's gonna manipulate his, his way there. And Jesus is making a point here. Forgiveness is not free. Forgiveness is very costly. See, in Genesis four, when you had Cain and Abel, and, and Cain killed Abel, God comes to Cain and he says, what happened to your brother? And, and, and Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, you are. You're the elder son. And as the elder son, there's responsibilities on you. And his responsibility as the eldest son was to go find the younger son and reconcile the father and the son together. Yet he stayed in the fields working to get to the heart of his father, to get his father's stuff without getting a relationship with his father. The sons, they both wanted the same thing. And in, in the forgiveness and if mercy is earned through our actions, then it's not mercy at all. It's free to the one receiving it. But forgiveness is never free to the one dispensing it. You will lose something when you give forgiveness. You will have to reestablish, this father had to reestablish credibility within the community. The son, the eldest son, what did he lose? Well, you had this property, a third of it was sold off to give to the younger son so that he can go off and, and pursue the desires of his heart. That left two-thirds to the older son, which is traditionally how it would have been. Two-thirds to the older son, one-third to the younger son. Katie's smiling right now. She's like, I get two-thirds of dad's money. I got two-thirds of my debt, and Maddie only gets one-third of it. So, one third. so when the father brings the younger son back into the family, what happens? 
he gets full rights back to that two-thirds property. He gets a third of that depleted property. So there is a price to pay for forgiveness, but that's what mercy and grace is. There are two ways to be disobedient and alienated from God. The first way is by being very bad and doing all the things wrong. The next way is by being very good and manipulating God to get what you want. Sin is not just breaking the rules. It is also putting yourself in the position of God and saying, I'm going to decide and determine what I do with my own life. And you can do that by being very bad or you can do that by being very good and manipulating situations. But if you don't have a relationship with the Father, you're still alienated from the Father. Each son tried to displace the authority of the Father in their own life and pursue their own desires. The last verse in this story, verse 31, it says, and he said to him, son, again, the, the eldest son said, look, look you, but the father responded, son, with compassion and empathy, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost and is found. In the first two stories, something became lost, and then the owner went to go find it. In the third story, the son left and was lost. And it doesn't match up, though, because the father didn't go seeking the son. Because that was the eldest son's responsibility. And Jesus is telling these Pharisees that we're in a world that's dying for elder brothers. And he inserts himself into that position. So he gave the greatest sacrifice so that the reconciliation can happen between the father and his children. But the father did go and seek what was lost because he walked out of the party and looked for the older son and tried to invite him into the party. See, this is a story about two lost sons, not one lost son. And it's a story that we can see ourselves in. Some of us are at some point in our life, we've been that, that youngest son where we've completely rebelled and we've rejected the things of God and then we've received his grace back. But my fear is that as we've received that grace and time has passed, we start thinking now it's about what I do. It's about coming to church, going to small group. It's about praying every day. It's about knowing scripture. And then we start like these guys not having compassion and empathy for our younger brothers. But we've got to seek that is lost. Anytime that we start forgetting the grace that God has given us, then we put ourselves in the position of this older brother. Some of you guys are, are still in that rebellious phase and you're here and God's drawn you into here and he's saying, my grace is sufficient, my grace is free. There's a cost to it, but the cost is to me not to you. And he's inviting you into that party to have that relationship. 
Now, now it's Father's Day, and I want to talk about three quick lessons. We're going to fly through these real quick. Two of them are for fathers, and one's just for men. And, and really, we can all learn from these, but I do want to talk to our guys here. The first lesson I see in this story is a father's love refuses to give up. He sought after the lost sheep. He, he left the 99, and he refused to give up went and looked for the coin and started seeking the coin and trying to find it, refusing to get up. The father waited, looking down the road, refusing to give up. Then he left the party seeking. A father's love refuses to give, give up. The second thing for fathers is the father's love is extravagant, not selfish. He celebrated when the sheep was found. The woman brought her friends together when the coin was found. He threw a big party and invited both of his sons to come when the younger son came back. And he didn't just put a robe on him, he put his own robe on him, the best robe. A father's love is extravagant and it's not selfish. And third, guys, a brother's love is pursuing. We are a family. As a church, we talk about being a family. And we... We're not just like a family, we are a family. And that means we're responsible for each other. And when our younger brother is weighing and not following God and doing his own, going his own way, we cannot get in the position of gossip or in the position of saying, well, he's doing his own thing. No, we're, we're called to go seek him and try to bring reconciliation amongst them. There's a guy named Lieutenant Daniel Dawson. He was in Vietnam, and uh, he was a pilot, and his, his aircraft was shot down. And so they notified the family that he was missing in action. His older brother sold everything he had and left about $50 to his wife, and then he bought a plane ticket, and he headed to Vietnam to go find his younger brother. He spent nine months in Vietnam, four of those months in prisons in different um, uh, detention centers and prisons with the enemy. He had gained such respect on both sides because of his desire to bring the brother home to the family, dead or alive. And they let him loose and they let him go and, uh, and they promised him that after the war that they would give him the body of, their, of his brother back because of the respect that they had for him. We're to be that elder brother seeking to reconcile the relationships between God and his children. As we wrap up, there's one thing I want you to remember on this sermon. There's lots, but I do want you to remember this one. We're all equals at the foot of the cross. The gospel has a way of humbling the proud and lifting up the downtrodden. Because when we come to the cross, we're all equals. So no matter where you are in your relationship or your lack of relationship with God, God is saying we're equals here. I died for both the humble and the proud. And at the cross, you can find the hope that you desire. Father, your word is true, it's powerful, and it rings in our ears today, Father, as hope. Hope. And Lord, as we go in this moment of reflection, I pray that you would just start speaking and 
putting in the hearts and minds of your people their next steps, how they can respond to your lavish, magnificent grace. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.